Project Herpetoculture, episode 28. Uh, this is Philip Leitz, uh, all, uh, always joined by my uh, lovely co-host, uh, Roy Arthur Blodgett, all the way from the UK, as I continue to say for some reason, even though he is located in the United <laughs> States of America. Um, uh, let's see, a uh, quick shout out to our sponsors. Project Herpetoculture is brought to you by Custom Reptile Habitats makers of premium PVC reptile enclosures. I use these vivariums myself and have been very pleased with their quality and customer service. We have an affiliate link for them posted in our bio. And if you make a purchase through that link, we'll receive a commission at no additional cost to you. We're also supported by Cold-Blooded Caffeine, roasters of quality coffees from across the globe. And for each bag of coffee purchased, Cold-Blooded Caffeine donates a small portion to conservation in coffee-growing regions. Regions, which also support some amazing herpetofauna. Even better, you can apply the code Project Herp for an extra 10% off your order. And last but not least, we have Redline Shipping for all of your reptile shipping needs. Check them out for some of the best customer service in the industry. If you're interested in supporting the show directly as a listener, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash projectherpetoculture. We also now have a range of merch posted on our website at projectherp.com. Of course, Sharing the show with a referral or shout out on social media is always helpful. Just know that every ounce of support is greatly appreciated as we grow the capacity and scope of the show. We have really big ambitions for Project Herpet Culture, and it's all only possible with the generosity of our listeners and sponsors. So thank you again. And with that, on to the show. Thanks, homie. Oh, and shout out to Charlie for doing our uh, audio editing. You're the man. Um, shout out to Dylan at the Animals at Home Network for hosting our show and for putting out a wonderful show of his own uh the goat uh mm-hmm. always have to say it and uh support us well uh, support us on patreon we have a patreon patreon.com slash project herpetoculture uh and more stuff on that to come soon and with all that said because i'm always awkward with this uh, I'd like to introduce our guest today. Is uh, today our our guest is Camille Hammer, all the way from the Netherlands. Cam, thank you so much for coming to chat with us, man. Yeah, it's fun. I think. And uh, <laughs> I I just want to say before we before we start uh, with with like questions and stuff, I just want to thank you, dude, because you you have been a good friend to me for a long time now, and you like I still remember messaging you on Facebook and asking you about the first clutch of Euromastics I ever had. And like, what do I do? How do I get her to nest and help? I can't figure out this nesting thing. And you were always super patient and super cool with me and really, really helpful. And I'm psyched that we could build from like an online mentorship into like a legitimate in-person friendship on a bunch of herb trips in Arizona with a couple of other good friends. So uh, I just really want to thank you for all of that, man. It means a lot to me. Um, well, thanks, man. You make me blush now. Yeah, that's the idea. That's the hope. If I can get your face to match some of those logos on your shirt, then I'll be in good form. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the the I, I know this is a total softball, easy question, but can you talk about? Uh, can you tell everybody like how you got into herpetoculture in the first place? Like, was it something you were always interested in as a kid, or did it start with going to a, a pet shop? How did that start for you? Uh, well, like. I think everybody there was a guest on your show. It always starts with dinosaurs as a small kid. You like dinosaurs. Um, 
But the biggest event that triggered my my really my love for my passion for reptiles was uh, at the age of twelve. There was in the local library there was a guy showing off uh, some. I think it were red snakes. I'm not sure, but I think it were red snakes. And uh, he was talking about them. And uh, as a kid, I could you could hold them. And uh, after that, I was really like I, I told my parents I want a I want a reptile. I want a snake. Uh, my parents told me, well, it's it's okay and it's nice that you want it, but uh, we don't think you're responsible enough. And I wasn't because I was 12. So uh, when you're old enough, uh, when you're 18 or something like that, and we think you're responsible enough, then you can think about getting into reptiles. We'll get you a reptile book first. Okay. So uh, that's where I started. And I started to read a lot on reptiles and I started to just, asked my parents for a reptile and they did no, and they bought a new book for me. And so eventually I turned 18 and I immediately went to the reptile shop. And by then I had already been uh, reading books for, for five, six years about all the different kinds of lizards that you could keep and what's the best at that moment was the best reptile to start with and how you should keep it. And at my when I just turned 18, I bought a leopard gecko and uh, a male leopard gecko. It was already adult and probably wild caught back then. Really beautiful wild color one. And uh, well, that, that started off the adventure. And uh, in the end, I think I got that leopard gecko for 23 years before it died. And I made a lot of mistakes with it, that first gecko. And I learned a lot from that first gecko. Uh, the first gecko, uh, after I think one or two years, I bought a female. It was a male. And I bought a female and I bought another female. And then I, I bred them and I sold them to a local or I traded them to a local uh, uh, reptile shop. And I think I, then I got, I got some, uh, um, how do you call those? Mad Madagascariensis grandis. They get goes and uh, uh, a pair, and I bred those two, and I sold those again to the to those uh, to those guys at the reptile shop, and then I, I got interested in my I got my first uh, Euromastics and nigger ventris, and that started off the journey for the for the Euromastics. I really fell in love with uh, that genus, and it's. For me, uh, from then on, it was uh, almost only Euromastics. Not Eric's only, oh, well, Euromastics only. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, that's how, that's how I started. Yeah, we, you and I share that. Uh, we're really, really fortunate to have that sort of similar passion. What, how did you settle, like when you, when you did get that first Euromastics, how did you decide? What, what, did you see it in a book? Did you see another one in, in person somewhere? Um, I think I decided on it because I saw it in a, a reptile shop, a different one that I used to go to. And I saw a, a really big one together in there with a really tiny one. Mm -hmm. And I, I bought them both. And one was, of course, not really in good shape because it was bullied by the other one. Right. Uh, but in the end, they both did great because the, the reptile shop kept them small and like well, they only have it on display for hopefully a few months mm -hmm. before it sells. So you can't really blame them, uh, especially not in that time. Uh, and they did both did 
pretty well. I don't think I ever bred with those though. My first ones. What was the first year? Uh, but it wasn't. Yeah. What? Well, sorry. Well, what was your the... bred? Uh, Ornates. Okay. Ornates were the first I, I bred. Yeah. That's that's why probably why I still think it's one of the best captives to yeah. keep for yeah. people. Uh, but uh, for me, it's also uh, the desert lizards are uh, by far the easiest to maintain, especially if you got more in one room because my room is so freaking hot. I yeah. can't keep anything else in here. Mm -hmm. so. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, so now I'm drinking a beer, but at my place, it's at night and at your place, it's just for the people to know. Don't tell everybody then it's going to look weird for having whiskey right now at 10, 11 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're supposed to, you, if, if you have a mimosa, it's okay, Phil. Yeah, then that's you just true. say it's brunch. That's true. Then you're not, you're not an alcoholic at all. Um, <laughs> no, just kidding. Somewhere. Yeah, right. That's totally <laughs> true. Um, so I'm curious to actually get a little bit more into this. So, because I know you, you and I share, it's not just a passion for Euromastics, but we share a passion for desert lizards specifically. We both enjoy Euromastics. We both have kept and bred Xenogama. We both have kept and bred Chuckwallas and collared lizards. And you, you've worked with uh, uh, horned lizards and a, just a plethora. You have quite, quite, quite a range of different species that you've worked with over the years. What, but what is it? Have you, you know, can, can you... Can you articulate at all what it is about Euromastics that keeps you coming back to them? Like, what is it about them in particular that, you know, holds your interest for so long? For me, it's, it's the till. I just, well, that's the dinosaur till. It's, I really lo love those spikes. Uh, and uh, the fact that they're uh, herbivores, I think it's, uh, for me, it's, it's nice not to have to buy that many insects every week um so it's a they're, they're a cool lizard overall but for me it's the tails that i that's why i also like the xenogamas mm -hmm. and i like the uh spiny tailed iguanas mm -hmm. uh, the the dinosaurs or the uh the the how do you call those skinks uh oh uh, igernia mm -hmm. yeah the, the smaug and the cordillus species, that's all. I really like those big spikes. <laughs> that's, that's, awesome. that's what attracted me to them. Yeah. And you've, and you've got, so uh, you, the first reptiles you bred were the leopard geckos then, right? Yeah. Right. First leopard geckos, then the day geckos. Mm -hmm. I only kept those for a few years because I didn't, they didn't really... They were constantly sticking to the windows and shitting on the on the on the front windows, and it was not my ideal thing. So I, I eventually ended up selling those again, mm -hmm. and they weren't desert uh, lizards anyway. So, uh, and then I, I, I think I then bought my first Euromastics, but I didn't breed those for a few years. I think I first bred the. No, I think first bred the Euromastics, and then the Xenogama and the Dipsos. Little stars. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it all started with the leopard gecko, and I still, I still love leopard geckos, but I don't love all the colors. I love the really the the, the bigger ones, the bigger wild colored ones. Yeah, for sure. That, yeah, that's why they call them leopard geckos. I think because they got this <laughs> spots. 
I like those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was really funny. That's that a great <laughs> subtle, like, like dig at all the yeah, that, was, that was awesome, dude. That was really good. Very tactful. Um, so, uh, I know that you and I have some, uh, some friends in common, but who you've known for a, a way, way longer than you've known me, but I'm curious who were some of your early influences? Like when you first started getting interested in reptiles in general, and then into Euromastics specifically, um, were there people who you looked up to and, and admired or, or who, who, uh, acted as an influence on you when you were younger? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, there was uh, Hank Swartporter. Uh, he was the curator of uh, um, the zoo in uh, Rotterdam, Rotterdam Zoo, Blydorp Zoo. And uh, he, he learned me a lot about uh, all, all kinds of different uh, Euromastics, Chakwalas, and that kind of stuff. He was already breeding them at really, really early on. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, Bob and Tom from uh, uh, Robert Bloom from Arizona and, uh, and uh, Tom Grab from Michigan. Tom is, of course, already mentioned in uh, the book of uh, Bert Langerwerf as the Chakwala guru. And yeah. he, he learned me an awful lot because Chakwalas are the, uh, the, the North American Euromastics. Is there so much in, they have so much in common in, in, uh, in their uh, habitat and, and also in their captive care. He, he, he taught me a lot of, um, of, of yeah, really important things. Yeah. Uh, and same, same Bob did. Bob was breeding uh, his hispidus uh, uh, and dinosaurs. And I learned a lot from him too. And then, of course, you got uh, Thomas Wilms. That at first, I learned a lot from his book because that book was my Euromastic Bible. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's, that was the, the, how, it all, how my basics were. That was my baseline. Um, was his book, and uh, and it's cool to say that now I've uh, already also friends with him, and that's well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, and and actually in the in the Netherlands, I, I at the moment I only have uh, only have a few uh, reptile keeping friends, and I think my best friend is Cliff because he's always keep, taking care of my animals when I'm gone. Yeah. And I'm out working with you guys. Uh, he takes care yeah. of my lizards. So that's well. Shout out to Cliff. Thanks, mate. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Let's go, Cliff. Way to good be. To have someone like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that book. It's, it's good to have some, a good friend like that and then around that, that can take care of your animals. Because my wife uh, likes the lizards. She likes me to have the lizards. But she's not into uh uh, keeping them or, or not into feeding them or that kind of stuff. Yeah. When I'm gone, she will take a look at them or just feed them if, if I ask her. But it's always cool that uh, I got a buddy that, that just comes over to my place and, and uh, feeds them and changes water and that kind of stuff, cleans them a bit. So yeah. Yeah. I'm really happy with that. Yeah. That, uh, <clears throat> that Thomas's book to this day is, is like the the primary thing when people ask me like, where can I learn more about Euromastics? I just say, buy Thomas's book, buy that damn book. That is by far, far and away the best resource for Euromastics out there. I mean, hands down. And um, it's fascinating how how few people reference that book in, in 
sort of modern Euromastics groups and and it's crazy. Yeah, it is totally. It's actually, in my opinion, it's the only really good book. He, yeah. he has a lot of knowledge. He's been there. He's done the research there, and uh, he's very knowledgeable about uh, Euromastics. So yeah. it's it's even if it even it's uh, if it's a bit outdated now with the uh, uh, new technology and that kind of stuff, it's still the best book around. Oh, and yeah. it should be in every one's collection if you like your yes, message absolutely in my opinion yes i couldn't agree more uh, i wish it was the one downside is i think it's fairly expensive now or i think right like the last oh, time oh, it's actually not but you have to buy it from the german amazon oh really mm. is that how is, it's cheaper if you buy it from the german amazon yeah, because it's not available on the Amazon.com or Amazon.uk, but it's still available on oh. Amazon.de, okay. and it will ship it. And it's, I think it's only 35 bucks, the English version. Oh, mm. I had no idea. Oh, shit. All right. Well, there you go. There's yeah. like, there's some pe- there's people should go get it. I, I was not aware of this. I have... There's yeah, a little well, pro tip. I have three copies. I think, <laughs> I think if you... Uh, if you buy it on uh, on the normal Amazon.com or something like that, you only have secondhand ones, mm-hmm. so they are really pricey. Right. But in their own store, or I think uh, I think I have a link to their own store. Oh, uh, I can I can send you and uh, you can put it in uh, somewhere. The show notes. Yeah. <laughs> Please. You can no. it in the show notes. That's a great yeah. idea. That's actually a really really good idea. We should we should very much do that. Um, because more people need to know uh, just just where to get that book. It's just such a good resource. Um, so, link it. you know, I, I, I yeah, we can we'll, we'll we'll put it in the show notes for sure for anyone anyone listening. So, um, I want to. There's a few directions I know that we want to take the conversation, and it, there's no specific. It, we could just let it go wherever we want. But one of the things I'm really curious to ask you that I've been thinking about for a long time. Let's say across the last like five years, if you look back across the last like five or so, you, you can you can make it a little bit longer if you needed to. But yeah. let's just say roughly the last five years, what are some of the biggest changes you've made to your care, to like the way you care for your Euromastics? And why did you make those changes? Uh, I think the biggest changes I made are lighting setup. Mm-hmm. And that has changed three times in the past 10 years, I think. Wow. Well, maybe two times in the last 10 years, but about 10 years ago, I switched to all those HID lights uh, mm-hmm. with the external ballasted lights mm-hmm. for the UVB, and they work really great. With They got a really good light uh, color, and uh, um, uh, that's, for me, sometimes it's difficult to know how to say things in, in English. Oh, that's okay. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they're really great lights, but the biggest problem with them is that I've measured a lot of them lately and the UVB exposure sometimes is crazy. So at 30 centimeters, you got uh, 70 Ferguson zone. Whoa. And that's, Whoa. yeah, that's crazy. So um, that's why I, I wouldn't advise them to anyone without a solar meter. I right. still use those because I can, I can put them up high in my, Tinosaur uh, uh, cage, and uh, and I can make sure that the, the dinosaurs can only reach about sixty or seventy centimeters below that. 
And then there is uh, the, the, the Ferguson zone about 10 or something like that. And that's okay. That's no problem. Um, but but it's, it's kind of crazy because most people have only have cages like most of mine here, uh, uh, 60, 70 centimeters, or that's two to three foot high. And uh, the Ferguson zone of, uh, of, of 90 or even 60, uh, if it's three foot high, that's just way too much. Yeah. So if you do have a solo meter, there's no problem. You can measure yourself. And uh, you can see if it's good or not. And that, but that's actually the reason why I changed almost all cages now to the uh, T5s. Um, because I'm always about practice what you preach. And yeah. I can, I have a solo meter, so I can use the other lights and I still do use the other uh, lights. But I, at, at the moment, I advise most people to go for the T5s. Uh, um, with uh, external heat lights like halogen uh, uh, lights, mm -hmm. um, and I can't really uh, tell other people to do that and not do it myself. So uh, yeah. I changed about eighty percent of my cages. I think right now I still have a few to do. I'm a bit behind. I still got about six or seven of those T5s ready to put in the cages. Um, and uh, so that's that's uh, the most costly changes I think I made the last five to ten years, uh, because uh, all those lights are crazy crazy expensive. So every time you change your whole reptile room, it's a lot of a uh, lot of money. But uh, well, it's uh, I, I I do see especially with the the change from the MVB lights to the um, externally balanced lights, the, the mercury vapors to the externally balanced. Uh, uh, high daylights. I saw a lot of um, better color in the lizards and more activeness in the lizards. So it's uh, then it's worth it to change. Yeah. And other uh, other things that changed, especially if you look at what I, how I keep them now and how I kept them about uh, twenty years ago, uh, is the, the the size of the cages. Uh, yeah. That's what I said. I met with the little with the first, my first leopard gecko. I made a lot of mistakes, and I made mistakes with lighting and with substrate. I, I, I think I've done everything wrong with that one. And uh, it was it was a solid lizard though, because it still lived with me for twenty three years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but that's that. was a learning curve, and uh, and I still do things wrong now, or at least I probably will say in about fifteen years. I should have done things differently. And that's why mm -hmm. I never really hardly say, this is the way, this is how you should do it. I always try to say, this is the way that works for me now. Um, but there's always different ways to achieve the same thing. And the yeah. goal is to have a, a, a happy and thriving neuromastics. For me, that's the goal. Or lizard, any, any lizard, of course. Uh, and there are several ways to, to achieve that. Mm -hmm. don't, you, don't you know cam there's only one way just one that's my it's way phil's way or the highway of course i'm just playing around i mean you know it's, it's cool because i feel like um you were one of those first guys that i saw years and years ago doing different things and, and, and when you would do something different, when you would change what you were up to, you would talk about it, you know, you would, because 
I first started getting aware of, of what you were up to once uh, was what, first of all, I was finding your website when I first got interested in Euromastics in the first place. I remember finding your website and I read all your care guides and all this other stuff followed. And I tried to copy what you were doing. Like you were why I got roofing tiles in all of my cages now. And you know, like uh, all of that stuff. And, um, but I, I really admired the way that when you would change something, you would post, you would talk about it, you know? And, and I also admired the fact that you, you would, you, you have no problem telling people when they're being an obnoxious asshole. And I don't mean like literally, right. But like the way I mean, this is, is it didn't matter if the person was brand new and you'd never met them or you'd never seen what they were doing. If you saw someone in the, in the groups or the forums getting bullied for the way they were caring for their stuff, you'd get on there and be like, yo, why are you guys being assholes? This person just got their stuff. Like it, like mm-hmm. just because they do it a way that's different from you doesn't matter. There's nothing wrong with maybe this particular aspect of their care. But then you'd also go the other direction too. And you'd say, Hey, so-and-so who claims to know everything about these animals. And you know, what have you ever done? Like, how are you, how are you making sure that this is the right way to do things? How do you know? How can you be so certain of what you're doing? Because you seem to think it's the right way, but I do it differently. And I always really like admired that calibration, the fact that you were always, you know, trying to do better all the time. And you were honest with other people and yourself about what was working and what wasn't. And you were totally transparent about sharing when something didn't work. You know, I think that's, that's a vital thing. I mean, um, can you, that was for me because when I started out with uh, uh, the gecko and my first year mastics, it was we didn't have. I, I'm not sure if we had internet yet, but we didn't have all those uh, those those groups of social media. So uh, the first cages, I just I, I went looking for uh, all the aquariums in uh, in in magazines or in uh, a newspaper, and uh, we got a, a newspaper that was only specifically for um, secondhand stuff. So you got a, a whole newspaper full of advertisements of secondhand stuff. And I was always looking through them, seeing if there were uh, uh, maybe old uh, reptile cages or uh, because back then there always already were people making uh, terrariums. So old reptile cages or even sometimes old aquariums that I could use for my lizards. Um, but there also was not a lot of people that really uh, uh, were sharing stuff because it was dif- more difficult to share stuff. You really have to visit another people, uh, person to share stuff. And later on, when uh, uh, you've got the forums, mm-hmm. and a lot of people th- that had success with something, they were on the forum and they were just showing that they had success, but they never would tell me what they were doing, what, what they would do to have that success. So, yeah. and I, I always thought it was strange because uh, it's, it's not like, well, especially back then, it was not, not for those people, it's not, uh, it, was, it was a hobby, it was a passion, it was not. They want to make money with it. Why not share what you're doing so other people can try and have the same results? So that was one thing I always thought to myself. But if you have success or if you do something that seems to work, then try to tell other people what you did and not say that that's the way to go, but that is a way to go and it worked for you at least this time. 
So yeah. Uh, yeah. And about, and about I really don't like that's why I don't really not that much on the uh, Facebook or that groups anymore because I really don't like all the negativity all the all the time if people post a picture there's always someone that tells that there's something wrong in that picture. And uh, th that's what I don't like. And, and on the other hand, I, I had a few times that people ask questions and I gave answers. And a half year later, they asked the same questions and I, I already gave answers to and they showed a picture of their cage, which I said, that they said, what could I change? And I, I already told them, well, if you want to change stuff, then you should try this, this and this. And they didn't change the thing. And then half a year later, they asked the same question with the same cage. And then I think, yeah, well, you, you don't won't listen anyway. That's why why should I try? <laughs> yeah. that, that was fun about you because when I helped you the uh, first very first time when I helped you, now you don't listen to me anymore. But back then <laughs> <laughs> back then I, I told you something, you, you you tried it out and and if it worked, that, that was that was always really fun. You contacted me and said, I have changed this and this. Uh, what do you think about it? Yeah, yeah. So that was uh And then it's fun to help other people if they are keeping uh, excited about things and they uh, they're wanting to uh, to get better at stuff. And it's fun to help someone out. Well, so that's well, listen, listen, you say I don't listen to you anymore, and the reality is, I just I just can yeah. tell already what you're doing. So like, I don't have to ask; I can see it when you post your photos. I'm like, oh, he changed. I know Cam's cages. I know yeah. he probably does this. He just changed that. Maybe I should think about why he's changed. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's not, mm -hmm. you think I'm not asking you questions anymore. I'm asking no, you, no. just not with my words, you know? <laughs> well, but it's funny because you, you say about, tell about uh, those uh, roofing tiles and I still love the roofing tiles because they yeah. work really, really well for me. Yeah. Um, but I had roofing tiles in with the, um, how do you call those? The, the, the Ouroboros cataphractus. Yeah, mm -hmm. and um, I didn't see them at all. I never saw them. They were always hiding. And I was talking to some other Dutch guy, and um, Roger Locks. I'll mention him because if he listens to this, and they say, "Ah, you didn't mention," and he told me maybe just try slates because uh, the roofing tiles are uh, the, the the shape of the roofing tiles. They Uh, at my place, they didn't really like them. I said, at first, I said, oh, well, almost everything likes the roofing tiles at my place. Almost everything. And then I decided, why not try and change it? Because if it works for him, why not for me? So I changed it all with just straight slates and I, I made those pretty good heights. And, and now I see them constantly. They're way more active. Mm -hmm. They uh, they come out. They I see them eat. I never saw them eat. I saw food disappear, but I never saw them. And now I see him, I see him eat. Uh, that's pretty incredible for me. That's so, a big change. Uh, yeah, yeah it's that, a it is a big change. And it's only the eyes, and it's the only thing I changed. So that's uh, that was pretty funny. Wow. That's, But, uh, I feel like that, that really That's actually why I bought all that, all that sleigh that's in my uh, in my truck now or in my uh, in my garage. All those crates. <laughs> I bought way too much of that stuff. <laughs> my wife wasn't happy with that. <laughs> No, I feel like that whole that whole observation just really speaks to how nuanced it can be, you know. And and I feel like that really affirms what you're what you're describing, and just how there are more there's more than one way to do things very often. And um, you know, it's so so often I think that people, especially newcomers to herpetoculture, they want um, the prescription, they want the formula, and um, 
I think that very often there's just so much more value in experimentation. Um, but at the same time, you need to know your animals, which clearly you do. That, that is, that, that's why I always, when people ask me, they, they, they come to me and they say, well, Phil says that you should keep him solo. And I see you don't do that. I say, yeah, well, we sometimes we think different about things, but I won't <laughs> tell you to keep them together because I know I always give them, and the answer is if you're a novice keeper, I think it's best for you to keep them separate and get to know your animals and then try to keep them together in a bigger cage, of course, because that's, mm-hmm. that's also, I see a lot of people keeping one lizard in a small, uh, how do you call 40 gallon fish tank cage? Yeah. And that's too small for one. And I sometimes see two or three, uh, mostly your messy gay right in there. And I, it's just sad yeah. for me to see. Um, but, but I tell people just keep them separate for the first one or two years and get to know them, get to know how they react to things. And if you know your lizard and you know uh, the lizard gets uh, uh, sick or, or uh, it gets a little restless and you start to uh, see the signs, then you might try and, 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 and try to cohabit them and uh, see if it works because then you can see uh, uh, when your animal is stressed and for me, stress is also part of the game for the animals. So it's also natural for them to have stress. It's the amount of stress that's important. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's too much, that's uh, two is never good. So yeah, um, and, and that, that's why that's always my advice: keep them separate. And after one or two years, if you think you know your animals, then try. Yeah. And, Mm-hmm. I like I said I, I, before uh, the the we you push the stock. I got about ten pairs together that do really good year round. I got about ten pairs that really don't do good together. They really are only supervised together, and that's mm-hmm. that's the thing. You really have to know what uh, every individual animal. Some species don't really do well together, but also within species, I got ornates that do really good together. And I got an ornate pair that really hates each other, but they breed really good for me every year. Yeah, no, there's so much here because, you know, you, you and I have also talked about this particular topic just, you know, on our own time over and over because, um, like, for example, I have memory of um, uh, someone posting a photograph of, uh, actually, there was two instances of this and both of them involve a species that you're, like fairly well known for, which is the Sara loricata, right? And and so one of these instances was a photograph of a Sara loricata swimming in water. And then the other was a video of a Sara loricata eating a bunch of beetles. And there were, which it's great that we have that footage, right? Like I'm happy that someone took a video of Sara loricata eating beetles in the wild. And I'm happy that there's a photograph of a loricata in the water, but the 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 problem came in when people inferred information from these piece these pieces of content looking at this video of Sara Loricata eating beetles and saying ah you see mm-hmm. they should be fed insects it's like well okay let's pump the brakes on that because you don't know when this was shot you don't know what kind of beetles they were you don't know what time of year this video was taken you don't know what the context was 
upon which the animal was mm-hmm. eating those beetles. And then the same thing with the animal in the water. I would be willing to bet that the animal didn't go in the water itself. It probably got put in the water by the photographer. Maybe, I mean, maybe it was a flash flood. Maybe it was agricultural runoff. That wasn't a natural part of the habitat, right? And or it was chased in. Yes, or it was chased mm-hmm. into the water. Exactly. And you wouldn't, you, you, you can't tell these things from photography and the, the, Even enough from videos, from videos. Yeah, or from video. Yeah, exactly. You, it's not enough. You don't have all of the information. You know, this was one of the same reasons why. You know, when I tell people, because um, just for the sake of letting listeners know who might not know, uh, Cam and I have like a slight. Actually, we probably align on the way we think about housing euros, but I'm I tend to lean more towards housing most of my animals solo most of the time for most of the year. And then Cam uh, tends to have a little bit more of a mix where he's housing a lot of stuff together for, you know, if they tolerate one another for a lot of the time. And, but, you know, when I go on, you know, prognosticating about how I think Euro should be solo housed most of the time, people will regularly send me photographs of your animals, or they'll send me a photograph of like a wild, you know, like there's a fame, there's a a really well, uh, it's a famous photograph of Sarah Hardwicky out in and it's a yeah and it's a great photo of like a mom out of the burrow and then there's a bunch of babies popping their head out of the burrow after her Mm -hmm. they'll say they'll send one of these photographs to me and they'll say you see they can be housed together and the the funny thing is that even though cam and i may differ a little bit on the way like the kind of hardline stance that i take on it and and the more relaxed stance that he may take on it we would probably have the same answer to the to someone mm-hmm. saying that, which is you don't have all the information. That's not the one photograph is not enough to sum up the totality of whether you can or cannot keep these animals together. I mean, would you agree with that, Cam? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. There's another thing, though. Uh, the, the, captive, uh, uh, the captive environment <laughs> is also not a wild environment. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's proven that uh, your domestics eat uh, beetles, and some and some periods of the time they eat a lot of beetles mm-hmm. in the wild. It doesn't mean they need it in captivity because uh, in the wild they need the protein, especially the babies. They are born around August. Mm-hmm. It's a harsh time in the desert around August. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. There's nothing there. So they eat probably whatever they see, whatever whatever is edible, they will eat. In our cages, there's plenty of food. Uh, there's plenty of protein, high food. Uh, actually, there's too much protein in our food, so we should try and tame that down. And that's why I do not advise to give insects, but I don't think it's a terrible thing if you throw in a few grasshoppers every once in a while. Actually, yeah. I think it might be okay for them right just not they don't need it i have raised a lot of babies and i never fed actually fed uh, insects to the babies i only do it to the uh to the bigger ones every once in a while because i go to a show and i buy bulk grasshoppers but way too much for the pectinata to eat and the the, the smoke and the ouroboros uh so i just toss in a few grasshoppers uh maybe uh, well, three times a year when I've been to a show, 
and I'd yeah. throw in some grasshoppers in every cage. And some really love them, and they go nuts for them, and some don't care. They don't. Yeah. They don't even look at them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For so, sure. But they, well, in my in my opinion, they don't need them. Uh, in the in captivity, it's even not less here because we can already feed high protein, so they don't need the protein. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's extra money because it's they are expensive. Insects are expensive. Yeah, they so are. I rarely give them. Yeah, me too. Well, that's, me. Uh, that was the same thing. It was, it was a little story. It's, it's, a, it's a bit side uh, story, yeah. but that's when I went to Arizona for the first time. I kept my chakwalas uh, almost the same as I keep now, because, except for the lighting. But I kept them on uh, uh, some of. Uh, uh, sand and and little rocks in, in there and uh, some of the uh, slide uh, the, the tiles and, and slate and I came to Arizona and I for the first time and I, we went chuckwalla hunting and I saw there chuckwallas and big rock stacks and all rocks everywhere rocks 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 ravages rocks I came home and I went to the hardware store and I bought a shit shitload of rocks oh sorry can I say that can I say that yeah of yes. course yeah okay. a lot of rocks a lot of rocks. And I threw them all in the cage and I made a really, all the cage was full of rocks and the chucks loved it. I never saw them again. Yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't clean the cage because the shit was falling all that, all down uh, on, the, on the bottom and it started to stink uh, like um, uh, ammonium smell. Mm. And after a, a month, I just changed all the rock back out and uh, got back to uh, making uh cravages with uh, uh flagstones and and uh, like i used to do because yeah. mm-hmm. it's just not the same the wild is not the same as uh, as captivity you can uh you can make the same especially for desert lizards you can make their habitat in a, a, a small five k two k two or five k three k three cage it's yeah. just not possible right. right so um i think this this speaks to a theme that that's come up a lot on the show, which is being responsive to the animals in your care. Um, and, and Mm -hmm. I'm sort of curious, like, um, are there, how do do you think about being responsive to your animals? And do you think that that's something that you can teach? Or do you think that that's something that people have to like, like figure out on their own through trial and error? Do you think you can, do you think you can like impart that bit of wisdom on to people and say, Hey, you need to pay more attention to your animals and listen to them more. You know, this is a, it's come up a lot anyway on the show. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a difficult one because not everyone's really open uh, to critics and it's difficult, mm-hmm. especially if you're doing this for 25 years, like I do. And someone's starting to criticize my stuff. That's always, that's also for me, it's difficult. And the first reaction is always from, oh, no, no, no. And you go and start to defend yourself. Well, actually, I don't, in my opinion, I don't have anything to defend myself from. But I can, I can learn from their criticism. And yeah. I can think, uh, I, I can make the choice for myself if I think they got a point or maybe not. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a lot of people don't have... Um, don't really want to be criticized about how they take care of their animals because it's it's their animals and they're doing this for so long or sometimes even novice people because uh, they read a care sheet somewhere and they told told them that to do it this way and if you tell them well 
like for instance with euromastics with the heat requirements mm. uh, some euromastics really like it really hot like i don't it's difficult for me to say fahrenheit because i'm in celsius but uh like 55 60 celsius mm. um and but others that really don't go basking with that th those high temperatures and they yeah. like it more like 50 to 55 that's about 10 degrees lower uh so you always that, that's the, the point you can you can teach people things but people should exp uh, uh, learn from their own animals because they're all slightly different uh and they will teach you and that will go with trial and error of course because we all have made mistakes and we still do yeah uh but it's it's important to have a good baseline and i my baseline i think was good because of the book of thomas wills right. that set my baseline and i think everyone should have either a mentor or a good book with a good resource in there so you can uh you can look up when things go south or uh, hey, my, my animals acting strange uh, maybe someone already had this happen to him yeah. and the problem is a lot of people throw that on the internet now and you can get twenty-seven thousand different opinions about what you should do right. and that makes it sometimes it makes it even more difficult than it used to be when you just had the book and you looked into the book and you said oh on this page there's something about it oh maybe i should try this and now you got so many options to try that's sometimes more difficult i think yeah it's a blessing and a curse yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's uh well okay so i've been going on at length i'm gonna try to pass this over to my man roy just give him an option to get a couple words in edgewise I'll keep going i know i love this stuff i'm um I know you're enjoying do. listening to you to riff. Yeah. Um, but, but to, to, to deviate a little bit from, from the focus on, uh, Euromastics and other arid species, um, yeah. you mentioned, uh, working with smog and Ouroboros. Um, and both of these are taxa that, at least in American herpetoculture, are really held, um, in in high regard they're kind of considered these iconic species they're extremely rare in herpetoculture um they're they have a reputation for being very difficult to produce in captivity um and i'm just curious if you could speak a little bit to your experience working with those taxa um just generally like how how do you keep them do you enjoy them do you think they're overrated underrated i'm just curious about your yeah, opinions yeah, on them sure um i got my smoke about 20 20 20 something years ago and probably with the knowledge i have now i would never got them mm -hmm. um, because they are just not bred in captivity and um that's a i think that's a, a sad point they do really well in captivity for me uh, but they won't I haven't seen any breeding behavior for the last 20, 25 years since I got them. And mm -hmm. I, they already were uh, older adults, so I'm not sure how old they are exactly. I have to check. Um, but it's a, uh, if I if I'd known back then that they won't, there was a lot of lies about people breeding them, and there still are people telling that they are captive bred. But by now I know that's not not uh, not happening uh mm -hmm. a lot of people keep them wrong too 
Uh, and I'm not saying that I do really well with them because I haven't read them, so I can't really say that. Uh, but I keep them outside. I got an outside enclosure for them uh, from end of March to about the end of October. And uh, they are totally different animals when they're outside. It's yeah. just mm -hmm. really awesome to see. Um, I don't, I uh, hardly have to feed them outside because they eat a lot of the uh, things that go into the cages, like uh, flying ants or beetles or worms or um, that kind of stuff. Nice. And, it's, and they're really, they're really nice and really interesting animals. But I advise people to stay away from them until there's really good success with breeding them because it's it's not worth it in the end. Uh, the Ouroboros, though, they are bred pretty well now in, in Europe. Uh, it's not that they are in a, there are high numbers of uh, babies are around because they only have uh, a few live babies a year. So uh, it's it's not like uh, with uh, bearded dragons or even some Euromassive that they lay 20 eggs and you got 20 babies. Um, but they are bred pretty good now. And uh, people have known, uh, have cracked the code, uh, so to say. Mm -hmm. um, they're really beautiful little creatures and uh, really dragon-like. Uh, the reason I always am a little wary about promoting them is because they... Uh, although they are bred regu more regularly now, they're still not really, uh, 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 how do you call that? Still not bred they're too not often. common or widespread. Not, yeah. Yeah, they're not com commonly bred yet. And I don't want people to want stuff that will eventually be, might be smuggled or uh, in. Right. So sure. that's, uh, that's the main reason why I don't really promote those. And I, I'd rather promote almost everything else I got. <laughs> I got in here. So, yeah. yeah. But they are they're really awesome. And especially like I said, I like the, I like spiny tails. They're they are totally spiny. So that's yeah. that's mm -hmm. that's the equivalent of spiny tail. So that's just really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um so one another another set, uh, set of animals you have that are are pretty pretty out there, pretty unique are those loricata. Osara loricata. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, can you talk a little bit about um, when you got them for the first time, uh, you know, when you bred them for the first time, and then, you know, now that you've been keeping them for a good long while, uh, what your what your thoughts about them are, as say, as compared to Euromastics? Are they no different? Do they have some difference between them and others? Like, what do you, what you know, same kind of question. That's, uh, well, I really love the loricata, but that, that's, also might be because I'm, I'm known for them now, yeah. mostly. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I bought my first three, three little babies when I was in 2010. Okay. Uh, I know that because I wrote an article about it and uh, that's when I had to look it up. But it was 2010. Uh, I bought three little ones and I didn't notice sex yet. So uh, I had to wait about... And, because it was the first time I had loricata, I didn't know what, what to look for and didn't see any hemipenises or yeah. that kind of stuff. So it took about two years before I thought, hey, this might be a male, this might be a female, and this one I really don't know yet. And after three years, in 2013, I bred them for the first time. So that was pretty quick. 
I think I had 12 eggs and I hatched 11 babies. Nice. That was, of course, was really, really a milestone. It was really cool. For uh, as as for uh, their behavior, they're really, really pretty cool uh, lizards. They are uh, pretty outgoing. Uh, they, they are pretty, they are pretty big. Not as big as Egyptians, yeah. but still uh, way bigger as the other uh, Euromesic species. Yeah. And uh, but they're totally not aggressive. Totally like your Egyptian male likes to kick your ass. Yeah, probably something on your that says kick my ass. Some people have that right here. Um, but uh, they, these are really cool, really nice. You can really grab one out. Uh, they are really curious to see one here looking at me right now. <laughs> here we go. Time to make Bill Dude. jealous. Ah, God damn, what a beast. So cool. Holy wow. shit. almost in his window, looking at me like, hey, let me out. What a monster. Wow. 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 This way. Yeah, holy smokes. Man. Really cool, really cool animals. For, and for captive care, I'll put him away, Phil, because you're drooling. I am, in fact, <laughs> I am, in fact, drooling. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> uh, as for their care, they're, they're pretty much the same as your mastics. Um, they do tend to hibernate and do a, a so winter cooling down, and, and but I also go down in summer for a few months that they hardly eat anything over here. Yeah, interesting. Probably because they will probably in their uh, own habitat they would probably go down during the heat time of the hottest time of the year. Um, and then they actually do that around here. I, I see them for two weeks. I, I still see them, but they hardly eat uh, anything. And they get a little skinny. And then uh, after about three weeks, four weeks, they start bulking up, eating a lot again. So wow. that's all. It's different because all my other Euromasks just keep eating. I know that some people, other people also have the same experience with some Euromasks. So I wouldn't say that's real, especially for them. But at my place, they all do it. All the loricata go in summer. They go down and they hardly eat anything. You see them less, and so that's uh, that's for me. That's the difference. And they just need bigger cages, like like your Egyptians. They they need space. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That's an understatement. So that's uh, <laughs> yeah. They 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 need just more space in there. But they're really really uh, really cool species. Nice. And they so. In my in my opinion, I really like those Egyptians too. But in my opinion, these because also because they got more color, but their head structure and their that's just an extra plus. Sure. For me. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really interesting to hear that 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 they that they estivate, that they they kind of go into a period of inactivity in the summer. I think about that like Obviously, in herpetoculture, there's so much emphasis on brumation and hibernation and the importance of that, particularly with snakes in, you know, assisting reproduction and all that. But it makes me immediately curious about what about species that estivate and do, does that perform? A, can that be a similarly beneficial role for them within captivity? It's something I've never even really considered before until now. Oh, yeah, I think I think it is. Well, yeah. um, I don't. It's also a thing we, we don't really know 
that much about any of the the species yet so right, there's yeah. a lot to learn and that's uh because i didn't I, i've never read anything about well, not much about lorcada in any book so i treated them like your message because uh well that's what they were originally mm -hmm. your message lorcada and and they probably are pretty uh close to your masks uh, they are actually um and that's why I treated them the same. But then when you've been keeping them for a few years, you just see small differences. What do you think are differences? And uh, maybe in the end, we, we start seeing those kind of things with Euromastics too. I'm, I'm not sure if you ever witnessed that with uh, your Euros, Bill. Estimate. They go down for summer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, in, in fact, it, it actually, this was coming up with between me and another Euro keeper friend of mine here stateside. Um, so I'm, I'm sure we could, I'm sure you've seen the same thing where sometimes you'll have animals that let's say you have a whole clutch of Thomasi, just hypothetically, right? Ten, you got 10 Thomasi and you, they hatch say in July and they grow August, September, October. And then you get a cold snap in November and half of them go down. Half of them just decide this is time, time to winter and sleep. But then you get the other half that just keep kicking, just keep keep, keep crushing right through. They don't go down. They don't brumate. They don't go down for winter. They don't do anything, but they're the same clutch and the cages are right next to each other. You got 12 inches of difference between this cage and that cage. It's the same. It's the same parameters, the same food, the same stick. Everything's the same, but this half responded to the, to the temperature change. Why did those ones do it? So sometimes I'll have ornates that hatch, you know, midsummer they'll grow and when half of their half of my holdbacks have gone down to winter the other half keep crushing through well when the first half start coming back out for the spring those ones that just stayed awake through the whole winter now they go down and it's like it's getting warm. it's getting warmer why did you decide to to go down now i i it, but yes i have had when it gets super scorching hot here in the middle of the summer and the ambient temperature in the shop is 97 degrees. Yeah, definitely. I have animals that just decide, fuck it. I'm not coming out. I'm not going to eat. I'm just going to sleep my way through this heat wave. And I, it's, it's a, it's a mystery. I mean, you know, you, you and I have talked about before about how for the most part, when it comes to base parameters, we keep pretty much all the euros the same. But then there's some yeah. some few species differentiations. Now I know you've. I'll get. I'll mm -hmm. definitely let you talk about the stuff that I know that you do differently for, say, princeps and Thomasi, right? But uh, I do stuff differently for my Yemenensis and my Ornata and my Ocelata that I don't do for my Nigroventris and my Thomasi, which is I give them ten times the climbing space. I mean, they just get more stuff to get on and under and around more more vertical space because the Thomasi and the Nigroventris don't really seem to use it the same way. They don't seem as interested in it the same way. Um, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do, I do the same, uh, especially the, uh, princess really like to climb and, uh, the, yeah. you, you wouldn't expect that with those little tails because that's why Th Thomas can't climb because they wag their tails and they fall off. Yeah. They're really a little bit dumb. Yeah. But, <laughs> I, I give Eminences and uh, um, Ornates and um, which ones I got more? 
I don't have those anymore, but the McFest, they really had a lot of climbing abilities. And I also uh, keep them, the Yemenenses, the McFets, I keep them a little more um, uh, humid. Yeah. Well, mm. humid is not, not a good word. If, if you look behind Roy, there's a lot of cages that are maybe 100 times more humid than any cage I would <laughs> give those, but it's uh, 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 more humid than my other Euromastics. Uh, mm. Because they also come from a more coastal area, yeah. uh, and my winters are different for Thomasai and Princeps than I do for my Negroventris or uh, my Flava Fasciata that can really go pretty cold, while the uh, Thomasai and Princeps, and they, they stay relatively warm during the night. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's... Uh, that's that's a cool thing. The baseline for all your mastics, uh, like uh, cage sizings, uh, um, lighting, uh, uh, warm uh, heat during the day, that kind of stuff, uh, hiding stuff. That's the baseline is the same across almost all your mastics, mm -hmm. but you can fine tune within every species. Uh, some species really, uh, really, really uh, need the humid height, while others might choose it, but might not. Um, so that's, that's, that's the cool thing about getting to learn, getting to know your uh, animals and learning more about where they come from. And that's, uh, that's the, also that's the, the, the good thing about modern days that you can go on the internet and you fill in Niger and you, you get the climates of, the, of Niger or you fill Yemen and you get the climate of Yemen and you see the, the, the rainfall and uh, you see the, the sun up and sun down and all those statistics are are easy to 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 uh, to see to view for everyone uh, and, and you can accommodate that to your own animals yeah so that's a that's really really a cool thing nowadays yeah absolutely so you know that's that that brings up another interesting topic in my mind which is you and I have talked before about how and and it's actually it's come up on the show a few times too, which is that um, just because you bred your animals doesn't mean that you're doing everything right. You know, like you know, breeding is not uh, the only metric, or shouldn't be the main metric by which we say, oh, I, I you know, my animals bred, therefore what I everything I did was right. You know, and mm -hmm. so so this mm -hmm. I think this might bring up more than one topic. So for example, I was speaking with a gentleman today on Instagram, um, who is messaging me, asking me some questions. And to his credit, he's a, he's a good keeper. He does a great job with his animals. Um, you know, but he was asking me, you know, can you tell me, are you at 12 to 14 hours on your light cycle yet? And like, I just want to try to keep mine in line with yours. And, you know, I really want to know, like, you know, how, you know, what, what UV are you using and how far is it from the, the nearest surface? And I'm like, bro, it does not matter. Like, it, you know, I mean, it, it, it matters. Mm -hmm. But, but, but the reality is you, you know, with, with respect to breeding specifically, they're, you don't have to trick them. They're going to do it. They want to breed. They want to do it. You don't have to, you don't have to poke and prod them with a stick and then electrify their tail and then make sure they, you zap their heating up and make sure they get extra calcium when they've made it. I mean, you don't have to, they know how to do it. They are there ready to do their thing, you know? Uh, a bit, a bit of good music will help, though. Yeah, that's true. I play a lot of childish Gambino here for the reptiles. So <laughs> 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 yeah, 
You're right, Phil. There was exactly the same. Uh, maybe uh, I had exactly the same um, question on uh, Instagram today, though. Really? About if I already was upping my uh, my light hours and heat, um, and I said no because uh, next week and the week uh, after that we get a cold stroke coming in. So mm -hmm. I don't want to start heating them up now because it's going down again. So I'll wait till the end of February. And he said, okay, I want to try and do uh, the same as you. And I said, well, best check for your own weather reports. And if it's only getting warmer from now on, then you can heat them yeah. up. And it, But if you see that in, in two or three weeks time, the, the temperatures go down and don't heat them up yet. Right. Heat them down for a while. Well, and, and so that's, that's. Yeah. And. Yeah. Stuff here, it's weird. Like, this is the first ornates for this year. They just started mating today. And it's like... Oh, that's, uh, that's pretty quick. Yeah, well, you were always... I always... A few months before mine. It's always... It's so. always February. Like, right around mm. Valentine's Day, within a get, within a week, they're, they're, they're mating, you know? Like, it, and, and it's... Um, that, that's not even a pair... Like, I didn't throw them together to try to get them to breed. That was like... I've been putting them in, you know, uh, as soon as things start to warm up, you know, or actually some pairs I'll throw together in cooling, right? Because sometimes that's when they're least likely to kill each other is <laughs> when they're trying to hide in the first place. I'll, I'll put them together in hopes that as I kick the temperatures up, then they'll start doing their thing. This is one of those pairs, you know, I've got a clutch of Moroccan eggs in the incubator that were laid in December for some reason, like, you know, like it's, it's, it's really weird. I have another Moroccan who's in the nest box right now getting ready to lay eggs, which is also weird. But other yeah, than that is crazy. An anomalies, most of the ornates anyway, almost always mate around Valentine's Day. And it's always earlier than what everyone, even most of what everybody's seeing around the world. And I don't know if that's just because of the circumstances in my shop, because it was like that at my, at my family's home. It's been like that since I got here in the shop. The only change is that when, you know, when things came here to the shop, I had a few and few pairs that just kind of went out of whack and decided to breed at different times of year. Like even my Egyptians, mm. you know, last year she laid eggs around Christmas or wait, no, it was my birthday. She laid eggs on my birthday, which was in January, you know, and they made it around Christmas. And then this year I didn't even try to put them together because I, I, I can't, I didn't want Egyptian babies this year and she laid eggs anyway. You know, she just, she just scattered, what was it? Uh, like 20 eggs or something, uh, around a nest box and then around the enclosure over the last week. And what if we're not? No, no, they, no, they were duds. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I'm happy for that. I didn't, I, I'm well, you know, happy. Like I'm, I'm always happy to see Egyptian babies. They're great. They're super cute and they're fat and they're amazing and they grow like monsters, but I, I wasn't, you know, I was intentionally kind of not breeding the Egyptians this year because there were a lot of imports mm -hmm. and, you know, my, my females bred for three years in a row. I want to give her a year off. You know, there's no reason for her to produce this year. Well, those, those dots are easier to, uh, to, to, uh, put out than the, 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 the fertile flag. So she, yeah. she would have made eggs anyway. Yep. Yep. Uh, even without a male, because she's been doing that for the last few years. Yep, she's in the habit of it. I got a few, I've got a few uh, females that I don't want to breed this year. Yeah, but they still lay eggs, but they work. They sometimes there's one or two fertile eggs in the clutch, but mostly 
uh, infrared lights. Yeah, because they all, they do help burn sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So, oh yeah, mm-hmm. I've had I've had Thomas I and Princeps do that. I had a, a Princeps last year lay a clutch of fifteen eggs without, be, and they were good, and they were and they, there were no male. Like she was never bred. You a, know, it's that's a pretty big clutch. She's, she's 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 old. She's getting up there. I mean, she's not old. Like she's not a senior lizard or anything. She's obviously in like the prime of her life. But she's been laying big clutches these last couple of years. Um, but she's probably twelve, maybe thirteen. You know, they're they're older, wow. older animals. Well, I, yeah, well, old. They get. I think she's she's still got ten years to go. Hey, so do Three I. Years. So do I. Three years, and then I, and then after that, she still got years to go. Yeah. So what do you? Okay. So what do you think is like the the? Okay. So. You know, we know we've got record of Moroccans that live 50, you know, 55 ish years or so in captivity at a zoo. And I think, you know, you, you, you're Moroccans, you're Flavies, you're uh, Egyptia, you're Loricata. They can probably live into the 50s, maybe 60s, right? Like a, maybe like a Cyclura. What do you think the max, what do you suspect the upper end of age is for your smaller species, like say Ornata, Ocelata, Yemenensis, Thomasi, Princeps? What do you think? I, I I don't know what the max would be, but oh, that's the guess. That will be 30, 35 years too. Uh, be, right? it, but probably easier for the males than for the females because females have to endure the egg laying every year, and that yeah, well that's that's pretty harsh on on the body. So, yeah. uh, mm. but I had a, an old female ornate, I think eighteen or nineteen years laying eggs, and she was still. Wow doing great but wow. uh I, I think it's uh, that's uh, it's a good thing to just sometimes let them skip a year yeah. and uh yeah. especially if you if you got several females from uh from a species it's good to just rotate them a year yeah uh just to, to give them some rest yeah it's good for the females the males yeah. that uh well they just do their job for a quick quickie and and uh it's okay so they don't have to endure the, the really hard egg laying stuff. Yeah. Uh, but females, they, they, that's pretty rough on the, on the body though. Oh, yeah. That's also, uh, I think a difference between the lower gala and, uh, Euromastics, but Euromastics also do bite uh, while breeding, but my lower gala are really rough. All my females are really open necks and wounds when after, after mating. Wow. So it's, uh, it might be that they the, the, the males are just not too good at mating or the females are strong too strong for them i don't know but they all they all bust the females that's, oh, that's man. Pretty, and but i think that's also why some people think it's uh, difficult to breed them because it's it doesn't look pleasant yeah sure so people separate them before they really breed because it just looks like the males hurting them it might be so, yeah no sure well, uh, but it, it also it heals really quickly yeah. uh, the, the the wounds are always just shallow bite wounds but it mm-hmm. can really be bloody bloody wounds yeah it's way way more aggressive breeding than than uh, with uh, any euromastics i got here yeah they never huh. well once in a while a pinch a little skin but normally they just bite and hold on and just hold on one one side and then go to the other side and then let go. Yep. And, uh, it's different with uh, Loricala. 
pretty rough. Yeah, yeah. So, wow. so your so your euros will breed both sides. They'll use each hemipene. Some, yeah, some do. Be. Yeah, well, maybe they all do. I don't know, but uh, because I don't see every breeding, right? But sometimes I see, I see them breeding, and uh, especially you've seen a lot of the filbi um, and oh, uh, and the flower fasciata that they just cling on one side. They breed one side, and then they yeah, yeah. on the other side and start it over again. I had a, a male uh, yeah. Yemenensis. I, I had a male Yemenensis do that like seven times. He he held yeah. on. Wow. He made it on one side, let uh, pulled out, went switched sides, made it with the other hemibene, and then went back and forth like seven times. And I was just like, all right, I'm not putting wow. you back in there. And he never let go. He just kept holding on to the female. And I was like, Jesus okay. Christ. Uh, that's long. I, I think I've, most of I've seen this three times. One, two, and then back. Well, and then... You, but but this is a, this is a great, you know, of course you didn't see all the breedings because you house your animals together all the time, like a savage, man. You just letting them stay, stay together all the time. But so if you kept them separate, you could regulate and know every single time they break. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, right there. I'm just being a smart ass. You probably miss opportunities too, though. Oh, sure. No, that's that's probably oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have no no I, doubt. I know. I know. I missed the opportunity with my Negro Ventus last year. Yeah. Because she laid she laid eggs before I put them together. <laughs> so <laughs> that was shitty. Damn. <laughs> she was so now I put them together before winter, mm-hmm. just before winter. Uh, so they went down together. Yeah. And they're now together, but they're both still gone or. 90% of the time, so they don't bother each other. Yeah. Uh, but last year, I just really had to separate, sep- had them separate. And then when everyone else was breeding, I thought I put them together. But just a few days before I put, the, put them together, she already laid dots. So that oh, was man. shitty. That's wild. Uh, well, it happens. Yeah, that's true. It does, it does happen, doesn't it? Um, okay, so I have two, like a two-part question. Um, the first, the first part of it is, are there, I know that you're over in, in, in the Netherlands and we're here in the U S but say broadly, her, if you look at her pediculture from like a bird's eye view and, and you say, okay, you know, the whole trade, are there things that you or like trends or things that you're, you're critical of that you'd like to see change? Um, and then this, the, the follow-up question to that is, um, what do you think herpetoculture might look like in say a hundred years, you know, like, and, and maybe we can, maybe, maybe I'll let you answer the first one first and we'll come back to that one or something. Yeah, I'll do the first one first. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, the biggest trend I dislike is, uh, all the hate, uh, it's easy to, uh, hate on each other on the internet. It's easy to be a keyboard warrior and, and, and write something, uh, write someone down. And it happens so much that that's, I really dislike that. That's the, that's one of the reasons I, 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 I sometimes I'm guilty too. I think everyone does it some, sometimes because then they push your wrong buttons or, or it's the wrong time of day. I don't know, but there's so much that uh, criticism to people that I really, really dislike it. Uh, another thing is that. What I do like is that uh, because more people are getting into uh, reptiles, mm-hmm. uh, the companies that make stuff for reptiles are getting better at 
bringing uh, uh, new things on the market that really are useful for uh, are beneficial for the for the reptiles. Yeah. So uh, that that's a really good thing. Uh, another thing I think I uh, what, what I don't like is that uh, that uh, the the community of uh, uh, reptile keepers is looked pretty much down upon by uh, governments or uh, official mm -hmm. uh, people as uh, criminals as uh, smugglers. Uh, everyone's a smuggler and everyone's a criminal, mm -hmm. and that's uh, I think also a big thing that has to change. And you see change with uh, zoos now. Zoos are more uh, getting more involved with uh, private people and to learn from each other, especially with the uh, endangered species or just difficult to keep species. But mm -hmm. uh, well, that's a, there's a still a long way to go there. Right. And I think that we're going to lose a lot of things because of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, that 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 view on uh, our hobby or mm -hmm. on hobby culture. What do you think? Do you have any idea? Any thoughts about what we might lose? The species. Just uh, you can always see the the bans on on uh, uh, reptiles or uh, uh, the positive lists, and there's mm -hmm. something to say for those lists. Um, but unfortunately, the criteria are often made by not by people in the field and are made on based on um, uh, how do you call that um, written uh, articles or uh, so people that don't really have a really interest in uh, reptiles make the rules for us and uh, are basing their uh, information on sometimes even old uh, old uh, research. Yeah, and there's a lot of things we can, we should, and we can do. I think to try and and, and reverse it or try and help out. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we will uh, eventually uh, the, the 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 species will be a little uh, less diverse than than we have now. I just hope your message will be in there because <laughs> that's my love, my passion. Well, I mean, as long as you have them, I, I don't think they'll go anywhere. Uh, that's true. But uh, like, you, like we, we talked about this, uh, your message gay rye are all over in, in the United States. And that's their biggest threat is, is the imports. Sure. Because there's hardly any good breeders working on a big scale with your message gay rye. Right. Um, because they're so common and sold for so dirt cheap. And that's yeah. the biggest downfall. You see, Meliasis were imported by big numbers into the United States. You don't hardly see them ever now. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a big shame. That's, that's a big difference between uh, Europe, I think, and the United States right now. In Europe, there's hardly any wild caught animals. Europe, well, I'm talking about Euromassive because that's what I, I, I know of. There, there are other wildcat stuff coming in, uh, but I'm talking about Euromastics. Are there any uh, wildcat Euromastics coming in? So it's all on the breeders to just try and breed uh, the, the current stock. And, uh, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. Uh, I hope eventually there will be 
fresh blood, but I hope it will be just minimal and yeah. hopefully go to the right people uh, instead of seeing all those half dead and sick animals totally. uh, right away in the, in those uh, fish tanks in in the in the um, shops. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, so I mean, this is an interesting topic too because. You know, there's so many, there's so many forces at play. You know, we talk about the need for more diversity in our captive colonies and collections. We talk about the way import export kind of screws with things because when, you know, I mean, we see it right now in the U S anyway, with big influx of both ornate and Egyptian imports over the last year and a half or so, and it's messes with the prices. So you see more people kind of like avoiding ornates or more people avoiding Egyptians or whatever. But then you and I both know, because we've been in it long enough to see that, you know, like you cited with the Mollies, out of nowhere, they might be common as hell. You can pick them up for 75 bucks at some local pet store. And then the very next, a month later, they're gone. You just, you cannot find them. There are none anywhere to be found. And there's so few that ended up in, in, in breeding homes. But there's two other forces that I think are worth talking about in there, which is um, if an animal such as, you know, like which, which has to come first. So we're talking about Euromastics gay ride, right? Which, which has to come first, someone breeding them in larger numbers or the demand for those animals in the first place, because it, it also doesn't make sense for someone to reproduce or maintain a particular animal. If there's nowhere for those animals to go. And then secondarily, let's right. say we're talking about a, a large group of animals like Euromastics. Um, you know, like I've made, you and I have talked a little bit about this, but I've made decisions here at my own facility that like, it doesn't make sense for me to keep and breed every single kind of Euro that I can get my hands on because then you're getting, <clears throat> you know, there's cages that might be occupied by say Maliensis, Dispar Dispar, Dispar Flava Fasciata, which are all, you know, highly similar or highly uh, highly like one another that are taking up space from say Ornata or Asalata or Jairai, which, which may theoretically have a more stable future in the hobby, you know? And so there, there's a lot of um, like push and pull, you know, that goes into making these choices and like, you know, you know, even with my Xenogama, for example, right? Like I, I really think the Xenogama have a bright future in herpetoculture and I, yeah, they they're cool. Yeah, they're super cool. You know, but does it make sense to have Xenogama Tayloreye, Xenogama Batalifera, Xenogama Wilmseye, like all all of them, or does it make sense to have one? You know, or and and again, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have the answer. I, I just these are the these are because we all talk about it. We all say we need more diverse species represented in the captive hobby because there may come a day when those animals are no longer accessible to us, or there may come a day where they just don't exist anymore. <laughs> Maybe they've gone extinct somewhere or whatever it is, but you also have to have somewhere for those animals to go. Otherwise there's no reason to, how do you manage it? That's well, that, that's the a, a difference between like you and like me, okay. uh, because you do it for a living. Uh, so it should be a you should choose for something that has a better future for your business yeah and for me it's uh 
uh, I, I know you don't like the word hobby, so I, I, I will call it the passion. Uh, for me, it's a passion. It's not, well, I don't have to make money from it because it's not, my, uh, that's not why, why I do it. And right. so, uh, and, and I like it that way because uh, like last year, I lost the clutch of uh, Laura Carla X. Yeah. Um, and if it was my business, I would have cried. And now I thought just, well, maybe next year. Sure. And that's mm-hmm. it's easier if it's not your moneymaker. Yeah, yeah, sure. And that's why I, I think you you are uh, you're smart to just choose uh, maybe five or six species that what you think will be best for your business in the future, mm-hmm. and uh, let the uh, more hobby passionate hobbyist uh, try and do their stuff with, like you said, the this bar or the. Maliensis or the Flavis mm-hmm. or the more 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 those species sure. and for me it's just I just get what I like and I breed if I like it and I, if I like last last year I uh, I bred a lot of Flavia fasciata and uh, I last few I had a difficulty to sell so uh, now that they are gone now but uh, I probably won't breed as many Flavasiata this year. Right. Maybe next year again. Right. And uh, I, I don't care because it's just for me. It's just fun. Right. It's just what I love to do. What I love to see. Yeah. No, most definitely. And I and I definitely don't. I'm I'm trying to avoid the financial decisions of a business interfering with my choices in terms of what I do and don't want to work with, you know, I mean, obviously there's some level of balance that must be struck it's, there. It's, it, that's not nothing. That's nothing wrong with that, Phil. No, 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 no. What, what, what would be wrong if it would interfere with your animals thriving? Yes. Mm-hmm. That, then it would be wrong if you take decisions based on money that would make your animals suffer or not, maybe not mm-hmm. suffer, but, survive yeah. instead of thrive and as long as you don't make those decisions it's nothing wrong with thinking well i like actually like all your domestics but it's probably better to focus on this one this one and that one and not yeah. all of them it's not like it's not pokemon you don't have to catch them all well but i do no no no, no sure no I, I i i'm right there with you i mean you are you and i are very much on the same page on on this part of it I just mean that, that, you know, we just, we just finished up a show last week or what was it? A couple of weeks ago with Alan Rapashi, right? So I was mentioning that to you uh, before we recorded <clears throat> and he mentioned having, you know, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, like anyone listening to this particular episode who hasn't listened to that one should go back and listen to it because it's a, it's a phenomenal. Listen to them all. Yeah, listen to every one of them. But but seriously, that one in particular really had a, a big effect on me, you know, because Alan mentioned feeling a, almost a certain level of guilt in some way. Like he mentioned the change from going to, you know, 30 years ago, you go to a reptile show and you see mostly different animals. But now you go to reptile shows today and 90 percent of the animals are three species. You know, you get mm-hmm. ball pythons, bearded dragons, leopard geckos, and that's just this, you know, and then you got, you know, corn snakes, crested geckos on, on top of that. But, you know, it's really all you see, uh, at least with a lot of right? 
Yeah. On that point, you, you used to see a lot of different st stuff. It was all wild card, and now you see same stuff, but it's all captive bread. bread. I sure. don't think that's a bad thing. Oh, no. Uh, I, I, I also like diversity, and I, that's, that's why I, besides your message, also have other stuff, because when you're passionist reptiles, you just love them all. So I like snakes, and I like tortoises. I like amphibians. Yeah. I don't keep them all, yeah. but I love them all, and I love to see them. So when I go to a show and I only see ball pythons, uh, uh, bearded dragons, and leopard geckos, I'm a little bummed because that's not what I'm looking for or what I would like to see. But on the other side, I'm also proud of the hobby that most of the stuff that's now on the show is captive bred. I couldn't agree more. Or at more. least that part is captive bred. And that's yeah. also pretty cool. So there's two sides. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. But And, and that's, that's why I feel a real sense of responsibility in terms of what do I choose to spend my time working with, you know, because it's like, <clears throat> you know, let's just take two really specific. So you got Maliensis and Dispar Dispar from, for even people who have bred those animals, sometimes they're indistinguishable from one another. You know, I mean, like there's still people who have produced clutches of both species who will send me a photo and say, can you tell if this is Molly or Dispar Dispar? And I'm like, I, I don't, maybe like it, it could be this one, it could be, honestly. And unless you did, did a DNA test, you probably wouldn't know anyway, you know, like, and uh, but, with, with DNA, you would, but not or, I mean, yeah, with, or without DNA, you wouldn't know anyway. Yeah. But, you oh, know, yeah. like, what is the utility of having two highly similar species produced in mass or does it make more sense to simply say, let's take it another direction. And I know this is going to get you fired up, Cam, because but let's just say you got these two. Why not simply breed those two subspecies together? Because, the you know, and again, I know, I know you and I disagree. I don't think you should do that either. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate, right? I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Like, they're like, like, it, I could also conceive of a time when it would make more sense to use the genetics from both, right? If you only have a few mollies and you only have a few dispar dispar and they're hyper similar in the first place, they're never coming out of the wild again. None of the animals that we have here are ever going back into the wild. Then I could see a reason at some time in the very far future to exchange some genes between those two highly related species. Now, again, I'm not going to do that. I don't have any intentions to hybridize any of my Euromastics. However, I also do feel like a lot of the classifications are totally arbitrary and man-made, but mm -hmm. I'm not trying to make a case for hybridization at all. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I'm, tr I'm trying to think very, very clear. Or, um, I'm trying to make decisions with as clear a mind as possible about exactly which species I bring forward into the future and why those ones in particular, right? That's all I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. yeah, I would rather drop both species out of my collection than hybridize them. Okay, right. And why? I, that's just 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 the thing I I really dislike in every 
speech. Sure. I, I, that's why I just told you, freaking leopard geckos, they don't look like leopard geckos anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They look like silly fireballs <laughs> walking around. I, I, I really, I just, well, yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> I can't, I, I, no. It's just, I could never, ever see me doing that with your masks. Sure. And I, so I you got it on record now. So in 25 yeah. years, if I'm breeding freaking hybrid Loricata with uh, McFadden and I, then you've got them. You can you can slap me around my ears with this one. So okay. uh, it's, <laughs> well, do you feel it's this just, way? Uh, there's so there's so much so much beautiful differences between the species that sure. messing them up uh, that really would feel shitty for me. Do you feel the same I, way about like a Lewis I hybrid or a, a you know, like a, a, the Galops, right? Like so many of the Galops we have are hybrids, right? I mean, that's part of what allows us to have them in captivity in the first place is that it's a, it's a legal loophole, right? That they are not, mm-hmm. that's not a came, a grand Cayman blue iguana. That's a grand Cayman blue hybrid. Therefore, no problem. Mm-hmm. You can have it. Do you feel the same way about those animals? Uh, I think the stuff is pretty shitty about that one. Yeah. Okay. I think you don't have any choice now anymore. Yeah. You guys fucked up the choice. Yeah. I harmonize them. And that's, sure. that's silly because they're endangered in the wild, but you can never, ever contribute to anything anymore because it's mm. fucked up already. Right. And mm. that's what I, that, that's, and, and it's not that I, uh, thinking about that any of our Euromassics will ever be back into the wild because that's, not gonna happen anyway it's more that there's so much difference between our, the species mm-hmm. and i'm not talking about this bar and and Malianzis because those, those are maybe the closest ones mm-hmm. and without dna sometimes difficult recognizable sure but i've seen people try to do it with uh ornates and nigroventris me too and that really makes me sad yeah and I can't, I, I'm, 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 I'm sure it's not a reasonable stand for me, but it's just something I really feel strongly about and I really dislike. And uh, because there's so much, the Nigroventris is within its own species already, and maybe there are subspecies within Nigroventris because they're right. so freaking beautiful in their different colorations and different uh, uh, forms. And same goes for ornates. And I don't see anything better coming up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. No, no. I, I, again, I think we're on the same page with that. And I, and I respect that opinion. I respect that position. I mean, you know, even talk about stuff like localities, you know, like I, I know that there's a subset of people and I used to count myself among them who really just love the idea of locality specific stuff. Right. Because Okay, let's, you know, if we're going to say that an ornate and a nigra ventris are so different from one another, that there's just no utility in ever seeing those genes coming together again at any point in time, then what about the same thing to, you, you could say the same thing about ornates that come from Israel as opposed to ornates that come from Egypt, you know, but at the same time, technically the same species, but still separated by millennia of evolution and 
miles and miles, hundreds of miles, thousands of miles geographically, right? But but no one would bat an eyelash at someone breeding an ornate that originated in Israel to an ornate that originated in Egypt, you know. And 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 again, I'm not. I should just. I just want to be clear. Yeah, but that's that's still the same species. Yeah, but again, I've talked I've talked with Donald Wells about this, and even uh, Phil and I are really freaking close to because yeah. i think philby should be a different species because me too i agree even when young they're so freaking different than totally different ornates totally totally different than ornates their behavior is totally different their looks are totally different it all be there their dna really resembles really are you know, really close to what ornates are sure so he said that, that probably won't happen yeah. um but uh it's the same with uh, people wanting to uh, breed the yellow flower fasciata with orange flower fasciata. There's nothing wrong with that. It's both the same species. I personally don't do it because yeah. I like orange to re- be really orange and yellow to be really yellow. Right. And I don't know what comes from that. If it comes muddy, yellowish, orangey stuff, or mm-hmm. I don't know because I didn't do it. Um, Look like a weird nigger. People guy. ask me do that stuff and i i just i'm weird in that way i'm weird wired i don't like to mess with that stuff yeah. i don't need to play god right mm-hmm. so same with the chucks phil you're right i i am a lo- locality yeah freak i like uh i don't like sorrow models being all other i really don't like that you too they're so that's strange but hey i keep red tails red tails and uh, keep the red backs with red backs, and I want to uh, cross them over. Mm-hmm. So, no, I, yeah, yeah no, well, and I do think that there is some room. And again, I respect your, I totally respect your position. So there's no, <laughs> obviously, no hard feelings. Disagree, there's no problem. Yeah, but you know, in my in my mind, I can envision a future in which, you know. You know, maybe again, I'm not saying I'm going to do this. I'm just saying I could, it's not that hard for me to imagine that let's say in 30 years when I'm in my sixties, I can say, all right, you know, it's kind of cool. I have this one line of ornates that are totally unmodified from the original wild caught imports where they came from. But then there's this other group of Euromastics that are a mix. And I, and again, this is going to horrify you. So don't worry. I could see it being a mix of Ocelata, Philbii, Ornata, all in the same animal, maybe even Yemenensis or something like that. And 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 again, would it, what would be the reason? No, no idea, no clue. But but I I could see. I'm also interested in the human element in herpetoculture in the same way that I like the human element in dogs, koi, cats chickens. I mean, they're all crazy ass mixed breeds in the first place anyway. I mean, that's really cool to me. And I think that's really intriguing, but it's, again, it's not something that I'm necessarily interested in pursuing. I'm not about to cross my species. I'm just saying it's, I I don't know. I can see a time when that might be interesting. Yeah. Well, one last last chance for me to defend it and then we go further. But yeah, for me, the biggest problem would be Especially with you guys in, in the United States, because over here we got um, uh, 
because there are cyber species, we have to uh, keep documentation on neuromastics. So we have to uh, prove that we acquired them legally. And um, if I sell animals, then I have to uh, write a, a document that I bred them, that uh, who the parents were of the animals and that they were legally acquired and where they came from. And I have to give that with my number, phone number, my contact details to the next uh, person that buys them from me. Mm -hmm. So you got a pretty good documentation on where your animals come from. In the United States, you don't have to, you do, you don't have to do that. Um, the biggest problem with that is you could sell those mods as what they look like. They probably mm -hmm. look like one of the three species you mixed in there, ornates or, a, and you sell them as you sell you sell you sell them as ah, it's a mod, it's an ornate Yemenensis Ocelada thing. And the next guy, he doesn't care anymore and he wants to get rid of them and he sells them as, well, oh, it's ornate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because ornates sell better than a mud. Sure. And in that way, you get everything mixed up. And that's, well, that's my final thing. What I wouldn't like to see in herpetoculture or in my own hobby, my own passion. But that's, uh, we can think different about those things. It's no problem. Yeah, no, true. Totally. Oh, I love it, man. Kick your ass anyway next time. See you. That's true. Yes. Uh, for all those wondering, there's lots of photographic evidence of Camille kicking my ass. Um, one of which was a staged, it's fake news. It is fake news incarnate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good stuff, man. Well, um, Okay, so then I thought I was pretty convincing, honestly. I don't you know. Haven't even seen uh, yes. uh, just <laughs> Roy hasn't even seen said photograph. Put it in the footnotes. <laughs> yeah, we'll put it in the. We're show gonna have to the put photo. them in the show notes. Yeah, we'll put the photo in the show notes. That's. <laughs> we'll make, get the YouTube thumbnail. That's, yeah, that's actually a really good idea. <laughs> that's a really good. Idea. Um, well, so so so, gentlemen, we're creeping right up on on two hours. And in an effort to be respectful to, to all of your guys' time and, and everything like that, um, I still have a couple things I want to ask, but it, we'll just start steering it towards the, 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 the close of the convo here, if that's okay. Um, mm -hmm. I want to ask you, Cam, like what you've been doing this for such a long time and you've been working with so many different things and you have, you've, you've made a lot of changes over the years and you're always evolving. What, what is the next what what does the future look like for you and Hammerhead Reptiles? Like what what are what are your goals at this point, and what are things that you want to do in general, just as time progresses? Um, to be fair, I really like the point where I'm at now, um, because as it's it's a passion and it's not a job. I don't want it to start feeling like a job, mm -hmm. and. Uh, everyone comes to a point that you think, damn, I got too much. I got too many animals and I have to cut down and I don't want it. I see people and friends around me that had a lot of animals and then thought ah, I can get a few more and a few more. And in the end, they kind of burned out on the animals and just uh, sold about half the collection. And that's not the point I want to reach. So I think what I got now is really good, manageable for me to give them the best care I can give them uh, money-wise so I can I, I can keep up. But because <laughs> probably the same at your place, but electricity bill is 
triple mm. right here now. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, so I'm really happy at the stage where I am now. So um, I, I really love the, uh, the species I'm working with. Pro I, I will probably end up buying some new things and then deciding if I want to keep it jazz or no. It's, that's always the thing, same thing. Uh, but for euros, it will be pro probably the same as I got now because it's a great. Um, I'm at a great point right now, so I, I don't need to get bigger. Uh, it's I'm really happy right now. So uh, for me, it's all about trying to evolving things. Maybe even at some point, I uh, I will go less animals and uh, bigger cages again. Yeah, uh, maybe when the because I, I got. I got some kids, and when uh, in about ten years, when they go fly out, I, I might have another room and try uh, to get a, a different kind of room. But there will there will always always be Euromastics. Yeah, yeah. you're gonna there's gonna be some. You're gonna the kid the boys are gonna leave home. You're gonna convert one of those rooms into a, a humid stuff, and I'm you're gonna I'm gonna be able to make jokes there about Dewey only. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's 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 what I, I was thinking. And there's so much uh, going on uh, over, right now. Uh, so much new things also coming, like new version of lights, new ideas. So uh, I, I will try and keep my husbandry husbandry up to par. Yeah. And um, and like I said, maybe a little less, a little bigger, or that's. Yeah, bigger is always better. Yeah, true. Yeah. Mm. So, the, and, and speaking of your of your of your of your kids, do do either of your boys have any interest in the in the reptiles? Do they do they ha share your passion? They they both they both would like some lizard or snake inside of their rooms, but yeah. the wife's pretty decent policy of no more uh, animals in the house because uh, this is in my reptile room where I am now. Um, and uh, the I got one uh, Thomas I in mm. uh, in a nice cage in the house. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing that's coming into the house. So that's what she said. If the boys want to play with the reptiles, they can go to your reptile room. And uh, so they uh, they both like the reptiles, and they like them a little bit more if uh, friends come over. Yeah, because mm -hmm. it's cool to show th stuff around and. Uh, it's cool to ask daddy to, if they can pick up the snake and show it to the people that are not so familiar with them. And, uh, that, then that's the time they, they really like, uh, that he has, uh, that, that he has a, a few strange uh, lizards in his house. Um, <laughs> and sometimes they help me, uh, clean or, uh, feed, but that's maybe once a month or something like that. So <laughs> it's not that, uh, they really help me. But it's, it's. I think uh, it's good to have for for a for a house or a home to have uh, animals, uh, so people so so the kids learn to respect yeah. uh, and uh, animals, and also to th that they learn animal behavior and see. Uh, especially with reptiles, you can you can see when they don't like things or uh, yeah, how to handle them and that kind of stuff. So that's a that's a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, then um, uh, we have maybe the, just the closing question, but I want to make sure I don't, Roy, do you have any other things you want to ask Cam before we 
hit him with the last one. I, I, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's come up, but I think that we just got to have him back. It's yeah, yeah, if yeah. he would be willing. Yeah, no problem. So, <laughs> cool. It was fun. Yeah, yeah. fucking with that was fun. Yeah, man. As well, so then we got the last one. This last question, then. So, and it's and yeah. you, you you've listened to the show as you as you made clear earlier. So you know the question that's coming. Um, why herpetoculture? Like, why do we do this? What's the what's the whole point? Yeah, well, I I, I made a I've listened to the show, so I know this question was coming. So I was thinking about it earlier today, and I thought it was a, a bit two sided. There's one side is why herpetoculture for me. Mm-hmm. And why herpetoculture in general? Yeah, mm-hmm. and for me, it's just like, uh, why not? It's just a thing that is my passion. It's I can't see my life without mm-hmm. uh, reptiles. Mm-hmm. It's something that uh, when I was small, a little seed was planted in me, and that seed grew, and it won't ever be uh, cut down or, or really. Maybe at some point, uh, some of the, the leaves will, will fall, but in the end, the real passion will never go away. So, herpetoculture mm-hmm. for me is just a way of life. It's just uh, I can't see anything happening that uh, will steer me away from that. And then you have the other thing why herpetoculture in general? And I think it's really, really important. Uh, that people like us uh, that love, have a passion or love these, these stranger animals show to the world that they're also cool animals. They're not, not only cool, but also useful. Um, and because if people don't know an animal, they don't like it. Mm-hmm. Or if they, if they like snakes, a lot of people hate snakes. Why? Because they don't know snakes. Mm. Uh, same for um, saving reptiles in the wild. Conservation. A lot of conservationists, I think, are not really glad with people like you and me keeping reptiles in cages. But on the other hand, they should also know that people like you and me are the ones that are willing to invest time and money in helping uh, raise money for saving animals in the wild, those animals in the wild. Because before I had reptiles, all my friends would donate to, I don't know, uh, where we have worldwide funds uh, with the mm-hmm. panda bear or to a tiger or to the whales. None of them would m- give money for uh, an iguana that got that almost got extinct, uh, extinct or uh, a snake that might be getting extinct. And mm-hmm. since they know me, since I introduced them to uh, that reptiles are also uh, useful uh, in nature, but also uh, beautiful and mm-hmm. fun, they are more willing to. If, if I have asked them for donations for uh, uh, one of our local uh, fundraisers for uh, stuff in the wild, they're more, way more willing to donate money for a cause because they know me. They know uh, the, the animals are uh, also uh, different and also beautiful and useful. And I think that's uh, also an important part of why uh, it's a good thing that more and more people uh, are getting into reptiles. And it comes with a lot of 
negative things and uh, a lot of uh, things that don't go well because uh, if you if you if something is mainstream, you see a lot of uh, stupid things going around. But it's the same with dogs and cats. Um, but on the other end, there's a lot of uh, good thing involved too, like uh, people that really are more interested in, and will spend money on uh, education or uh, uh, saving animals in the wild. So that's mm-hmm. the second part of it, I think. Yeah. For me, it's just the love passion for the animals. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's a great way to answer that question with that dichotomy down the middle. And like, here's, here's the two ways mm-hmm. I see it. I love it, man. Yeah. That's a great answer, Cam. Well, yeah, and I appreciate you offering an answer for each of those too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No so before, before it was, it's a difficult question. So yeah, I was uh, thinking about it today. I think, oh damn, that's a difficult question to answer. You might better be prepared. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been fun to see the the huge range of answers we've received to that question uh doing the show oh, yes. uh, it's been it's been really really fun and i, I keep looking forward to more because i know we're going to get different answers that neither of us have thought of yet so i'm, I'm pretty pretty it is cool i like the disease one yeah 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 bill trump are really <laughs> not the park with that one he's like it's a disease yeah, yeah. i didn't know anymore who said it but i i like that one and he's yeah. right <laughs> he's, yeah he's totally he's dead on so far he's so true there, man He's had more people say, I think more people have cited his answer to that question than any other uh, so far. Um, yeah. It's because he's right. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, so before we stop the recording, where can people find, uh, find you and, and like, you know, I know uh, like your, your, your medias and all that, whatnot. Uh, well, I'm on Instagram uh, as the hammerhead reptiles and on Facebook justice. Camille Alms, just me. Cool. So uh, that's, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a website or uh, I'm just there. You don't have a website anymore? No, the website is long gone. Oh, you man. know why? Because care sheets get outdated and mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's difficult to, uh, especially if you got, lo- back then we had a lot of species on there, also monitors and that kind of stuff. And it's difficult to keep track with all, everything all the time. So it's a, uh, uh, it, I think it's already maybe the website's already down for maybe 15 years, something like that, Phil. <laughs> no, no way. Yeah, I think so. No way, dude. No. Yeah, probably. I like no, I went, maybe 10. I feel like I was just there. I was just there. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fresh yeah. in his mind. You're getting old, buddy. Yeah, all right. Uh, <laughs> Now, now we're really gonna have to fight the next time. The next time we yeah. uh, see each other, man. <laughs> All right. Pictures well. in the in the show notes. Oh yeah, we will. Don't worry. Don't oh yeah, worry. we will. Here, let me <laughs> let me just stop the recording really fast. Hang on.